Welcome to Frontline Voices, a podcast by the Natural Resources Council of Maine. Every day, decisions are made across Maine that impact our environment, and Mainers play a crucial role as we speak up for climate action, the clear air, clear water, and open spaces that we all love. Come sit down with advocates and experts to discuss some of the most important stories that you need to know, what lies ahead, and hear what you can do about it. Thanks for listening as we share our view from the front lines. The scientific evidence is unequivocal. Climate change is a threat to human well-being and the health of the planet. Well, that was the takeaway from one of the scientists who authored the latest international climate report that was released in late February. The UN Secretary General called it an atlas of human suffering, and the report was the bleakest warning yet from the world scientists that the impacts of climate change, especially extreme weather, drought, extreme rain, et cetera, are uh, accelerating faster than anticipated. But these same scientists left us with a sliver of hope. They made clear that if the world takes immediate action to reduce fossil fuel use, we could have a ch- and eliminate it, we could have a chance at avoiding some of the worst impacts. Uh, and that's what we want to talk about in this episode of Frontline Voices. I'm Colin Durant, NRCM's Advocacy Communications Director, and I'm joined once again by our Climate and Clean Energy Director, Jack Shapiro, to bring this international news down to a local level here in Maine. Welcome again, Jack. Hey, Colin. Great to be back with you. Good to see you. So we're going to dive right in, and we're, we're actually going to talk about two issues that I think may not come top of mind to people when we talk about climate action, but that NRCM are really deeply involved in and, and really matter for the climate. Um, The first is an issue that's been in the news a lot recently. That's the poor performance of Maine's utilities, really poor performance. Um, Governor Mills filed a utility accountability bill that has received a lot of attention. Jack, can you just give us, uh, start off by giving us NRCM's take on that bill? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Colin. Well, first, let me just say that Maine people deserve and, and really we need electric utilities that are leaders in a whole bunch of, of ways. Um, we need them to be meeting uh, performance measures that include reliability, affordability, customer service, but also um, enabling the clean energy transition and modernizing the grid. And, and that's really not what we have today. So this bill um, is, coming from a really good place um, and, you know, heading towards uh, holding our utilities accountable to some of those things. But we think some pretty substantial changes need to be made to improve the bill. Um, and, and that can, if, if we're successful in doing that, that can play a really important role in not just improving the quality of service um, for Mainers from the utilities, but also helping us achieve our climate and clean energy goals. Yeah, so let's dig into that. So legislators recently held a public hearing on on the governor governor's bill. That's LD nineteen fifty nine. Um, and while CMP and Versant, who, they're the two uh, big investor owned utilities here in Maine, they of course testified in opposition. Um, so interestingly, did supporters of the campaign to create a consumer owned utility. Uh, meanwhile, NRCM and several other environmental groups testified with this qualified support that you just mentioned, that you just alluded to. Um, I know NRCM senior advocate and general all-around rock star, Rebecca Schultz, testified um, detailing several of those areas of the bill that we feel like need to be improved. 
especially to like proactively meet the state's climate goals. Um, can you just can you just give us sort of the um, you know detail what those specific improvements are so people can get a sense of how we think uh, this or where this where we think this bill needs to go. Yeah, there's really three areas that um, that that really need improvement. So the first one is that the bill right now includes an important set of key performance metrics uh, that utilities need to hit. And we believe those need to be broadened. Um, of course, we need utilities to provide reliable service and accurate bills and good customer service. That is a, that's table stakes. But they also need to be accountable for affordability and how they're aligning their businesses and investments with building the modern distributed grid that we need and meeting the climate goals that we've put into law uh, as a state. The second piece is climate planning. So the bill now requires utilities to plan for the impacts of climate change. Um, for example, making sure that substations near sea level aren't flooding. Um, but it has no provision to, pro to require a proactive plan for how they mean to enable the clean energy transition. Um, this we think is uh, one of the biggest oversights in the bill and one that we just have to, um, we have to get some form of proactive climate planning included. But if we do, this is gonna make it far, far easier for the utilities, the, the regulators, the Public Utilities Commission, um, you know, Efficiency Maine um, and others to uh, enable us to make this transition with the biggest benefits for, for Maine people. The last piece is, uh, is around divestiture and the consumer-owned utility. Um, and I think this is the part that, that really drew the ire of the, of the um, COU referendum campaign. So this bill includes a provision that if a utility is consistently failing on these metrics that are laid out, the PUC can revoke their ability to operate in Maine. They can revoke their, their franchise and, and force uh, what they call divestiture, basically selling off the utility to, to a, a new owner. And it provides an option for a, a committee to come together to offer a consumer-owned option to take over um, instead of just another you know, big utility holding company. Unfortunately, the specifics of that in the bill aren't very strong. And because of that, I think it was interpreted as a way to undermine the ongoing work to put a consumer-owned utility proposal on the ballot in 2023. Now, we believe really strongly that this bill should not be in conflict with the, with the COU referendum proposal. Um, we're gonna need performance metrics and climate planning and effective oversight um, no matter what the business model of our utilities is, whether that's uh, whether that's investor owned or whether that's consumer owned, I really appreciate you bringing up that last bit about consumer owned utility. I think a lot of our listeners, a lot of supporters, you know, care deeply about that, are concerned about the performance of CMP, see that as a um, you know potential real option. And so, can you just just continue along that line here about how? Um, how those, you, you know, how this bill and the COU referendum effort don't necessarily have to be sort of um, in conflict. Yeah, yeah. And again, we, we really don't think these, these need to be in conflict at all. They sort of address two separate uh, pieces of, of, our, um, of our issues surrounding utilities. Because, you know, again, oversight, transparent metrics um, that, are, that are comprehensive and let us really see into the operation of our electricity system um, and comprehensive climate planning 
which is something that there's been a really um, intensive uh, conversation amongst policymakers over the over the past several years. You know, these are things that are going to be important again, no matter what uh, kind of business model the utilities are operating under. And I'll remind you know our, our listeners, NRCM testified in support of the consumer-owned utility bill last year. Um, but what this bill is really about is putting these performance measures and planning processes in place right now as the referendum works on gathering signatures and, and mounting their campaign um, you know, at the ballot box in 2023. But we have a real opportunity um, you know, right here in front of us um, in this session um, you know, while that referendum effort continues in parallel. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Thanks for that. Um, and I just want to sort of you know, I want to wrap up this conversation about utility accountability. You, we, you've referenced climate a lot, but I really wanted you to um, speak directly to the climate connection here. You know, clearly lay out for our listeners, our supporters, why utility accountability is so critical to the work that we're doing to achieving um, Maine's clean energy future. Yeah, well... The electricity sector is just the critical space um, that we have to get right for our energy transition. You know, building renewable energy to push fossil fuels out of our electricity mix and transitioning to an electrified transportation system, uh, electrifying how we heat our buildings and, and uh, you know, eliminating uh, things like, um, you know, expensive heating oil and, and natural gas. You know, this has huge benefits, um, you know, for climate and beyond, you know, no more paying for, uh, for gas at the pump, um, freeing ourselves from getting hit with, you know, these huge bills to fill, um, you know, our oil tanks in the winter. Um, you know, this price volatility that's inherent in fossil fuels, um, you know, tied to international events, you know, right now there's, um, you know, LNG exports going to Europe because of the situation in, with, with Ukraine and Russia. And we just have to get ourselves off of this, uh, Roller coaster, and the power sector is the is the foundation for this. Um, right now, there are no metrics for utilities in many of these areas, or penalties if they're failing. Um, so the transition right now is not happening in the way that we need it to. Um, the investments that we need to enable widespread electrification, so Mainers can save big on energy costs, you know, those aren't happening. Um, comprehensive grid planning is not happening. And, and we have a bill that could accomplish a number of those things um, in this session right now. So it's really critical that we take advantage of that. Yeah, well, thanks so much for that. And let's hope it moves forward if we can get some of those provisions we're, we're looking for, for all the reasons you just talked about. Um, uh, so let's just move on to the second climate-related topic we wanted to dive into that's been in the news a lot recently, and I'm sure is on a lot of people's mind, that's housing. You heard me correctly, housing. Um, and we wanna talk about this because last year, a state commission on housing released a report. The recommendations from that report are now embodied in a bill recently fi filed by the House Speaker. Uh, and that, that's gonna receive a public hearing on uh, Monday, March 7th. Um, Jack, you just wrote a blog post for us on this topic, really explaining the connection between housing and climate, why we're interested uh, in this bill. So can you just um, talk a little bit about um, what you spoke about or what you wrote about, excuse me, in that, in that blog about why we're looking at housing as a climate issue? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that we can't limit our thinking on 
climate policy to just things like solar panels or uh, or wind farms or electric cars. You know, those are important elements of the energy transition and they're big pieces, but we also need to think comprehensively about how our communities are laid out as well. Development and housing decisions impact energy use in a whole bunch of ways in, in terms of infrastructure costs, you know, but probably most acutely in, in terms of uh, transportation emissions. Um, and that happens to be our state's largest sector source of greenhouse gas emissions. So, so it's really important. There's a really close connection there. Oh, I think you're muted, Colin. Yep, sorry about that. I didn't want people to have to hear all the dings of all my emails coming in. <laughs> Thanks for the heads up on that. Um, I appreciate I appreciate that we're having this discussion here at NRCM. One of the things that you talk about in your blog um, are how past practices, especially exclusionary zoning, have created the housing crisis we face here in Maine. Um, uh, and can, as you say, can you walk out on this a little bit with us? Um, what, you know, what are you talking about with that? Yeah, I'm always, always happy to walk out. Um, so it's what we it's, do. <laughs> yep. It, well, exclusionary zoning is the term for zoning restrictions that really limit the amount and type of housing that can be built in, in any given community. And a lot of it, unfortunately, has its roots, it has its roots in racist housing policies from the, from the 20th century. Um, many communities, when they were no longer able to discriminate in housing based on race, found other ways to keep certain races or classes of people from moving into their communities. So some examples of these uh, include minimum lot sizes, single residence requirements on a lot, minimum square footage limits, um, certain setbacks, and all of these things limit housing supply, which drives up costs and keeps quote unquote, undesirable populations concentrated elsewhere. Now, there are, um, this is really well documented. And of course, it's tied to a lot of other issues, you know, alongside and connected to race and class, like access to good schools, economic opportunity, investment, etc. But the connection back to climate is that spread out sprawling development styles were facilitated by then really cheap fossil fuels and enormous amounts of government subsidized road building. So now we have both a really climate intensive and costly car focused transportation system and really expensive housing because exclusionary zoning never really went away. So making changes to these systems is, is going to be challenging. Um, you know, one of my favorite quotes uh, that I found from a housing scholar uh, as I researched the, the, the piece was that housing costs are just property values viewed from a different angle. Um, but you know, we've never shied away from, uh, from thinking big at NRCM and we're, we're not gonna start now. So we're, uh, we intend to be really engaged in this. Like I said, I appreciate that. I'm sort of seeing that acutely in my town where we've got some developments being proposed right in the village center, perfect location, walkable. There's a metro bus stop nearby. There's a bike path nearby that could take you to the grocery store. Um, some opposition to those, but then you see a lot of houses going up outside of town, um, you know, in this sprawl where you are, where you can't walk or bike to places. And so I think 
it's just a real tangible example. And, and, and like I said, housing is something that's on everybody's mind right now as, as real estate has just been red hot. Um, you do a really good job, I think, of clearly laying out the benefits of these changing these changes to housing policy. So you just talked about the problems. You know, this bill is such a great start at, at, at sort of rectifying the situation. What are, what are, let's talk about the opportunities, right? Climate change, I know you like to say it, is all about opportunities. It is, it's about some really great benefits. So can you just lay out those benefits of these, that these changes to housing policy would have for Maine people? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one that you just, just mentioned is that, you know, encouraging development in, um, in, in our cities, in our towns and village centers, reduces development pressure outside of uh, cities on, on forest land and farmland. Um, obviously it preserves those landscapes, but it also you know, preserves those landscapes ability to capture and store carbon, um, you know, as well as preserving them for their own inherent benefits. Uh, more housing options, more diverse housing options like, like duplexes or small apartment buildings, you know, they give people the choice to live closer to jobs and services, which reduces commutes, it reduces trips and transportation costs. And, you know, and again, transportation is our, our number one source of climate pollution here in Maine. An another piece is that communities where residents live closer to work and school and services, you know, that those are more resilient, um, especially when we're experiencing more frequent and severe extreme weather, um, which we are, as you, as you said at the top of the, of the pod today, you know, as a result of climate change. Um, more compact communities lower the cost of infrastructure. Uh, they increase the viability of transit, um, which, which increases choice for, for people to use lower cost and lower, lower emission options. And living closer to um, schools and stores and the places we need to go lets people live healthier lives where, where people can walk and bike um, safely on, on sidewalks and, and other active transportation infrastructure like, like trails. Um, and, and really, it's a, it's a better quality of life all around um, to give people those, those options, and it reduces emissions on, emissions on top of all of that. I love, as you know, I love that, that picture of the future that you just painted. Uh, and hopefully, you know, this bill will help get us a little closer to it. It's really exciting stuff. And like I said before, I'm, I, um, it's really wonderful to see you and the climate team looking at these issues so deeply. Also, you're doing the same with transportation. We've talked about that before, an issue that's close to my heart. Um, love to hop on the bike whenever I can. Um, so really appreciate that. Um, before we wrap up, I wanted to just give a little, uh, a few other updates, non-climate related, uh, on the latest news about Maine's environment, what's been happening. Um, so earlier this week, the legislature held a hearing on two bills that are important for the future health of Maine's clean water and healthy rivers. One was good, the other was bad. Um, so we're, opposed, we're urging legislators to oppose LD 1979. Uh, that's a bill that would make it uh, impossible for state agencies to use the best available science to protect and restore our rivers. We've had highly successful, enormously successful river restoration projects here in Maine, like the removal of the Edwards Dam, Penobscot River Restoration. Uh, this project would not make those possible. And so we are um, so we are working with a wide variety of partners to help you know, uh, oppose that bill. Now, on the other hand, we're urging legislators to support 
1964, that's a bill that would upgrade water quality standards and increase protections um, on more than 800 miles of rivers and streams. This is part of the Clean Water Act. Uh, Maine's waters are so clean because of these strong protections that are put in place by state and federal government. So we're hoping to see that move forward quickly. I'll also note um, Baxter State Park is looking for a new director after the former director left for a new job at the Nature Conservancy. So we want to thank Eben, who is the former director for his leadership and stewarding Baxter up uh, in Katahdin, a place that means so much to so many people here in Maine, and for especially exhibiting such strong conservation values as park director. So we wish him good luck uh, in his new role over at TNC. I also wanted to note uh, the Supreme Court considered a case earlier this week as well. Uh, it's been a big week for climate, which could limit the EPA's ability to regulate pollution from dirty power plants. We're watching this because, you know, any court ruling that jeopardizes the EPA's ability to implement the Clean Air Act would have dire consequences for the health of Maine people in our climate. Uh, finally, we're sort of tracking legislators will return for session next week. That's March 9th. And we're hoping to see them vote on the bill to expand ecological reserves. And we're hoping to see some movement on that bill to close the out-of-state weight waste loophole. So we're going to, I know two bills that, you know, a lot of you care about. So we're going to keep you updated on the progress of those bills. Jack, I want to thank you again for joining us. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Colin. Great to be here. And climate is everywhere. So we're going to have you back on to talk about um, other climate issues, I'm sure, in the future. Um, thanks also to our listeners for tuning in. I've gotten some really great messages recently from people who appreciate this. So I, you know, we love to get that feedback. Send us that feedback, but also let me know what you'd like to hear about as well. So thanks again for listening and we'll talk to everybody soon. Thanks for listening to Maine Environment Frontline Voices. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to our podcast or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and several other podcast listening apps. Since 1959, NRCM has been tapping into the power of the Maine people, science, and the law to protect and enhance the nature of Maine. To learn more about our work, visit nrcm.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at NRCM Environment.